Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, folks, we have Dr. Patricia Monahan coming to us from the windy city of Chicago, Illinois, and she's going to be talking about one of her many books, Meditation, the Complete Guide. Meditation, the Complete Guide, techniques from East and West to calm the mind, heal the body, and enrich the spirit. This is a book that's right up the alley of this program, isn't it? So stay tuned for this great interview. Learn a lot about various kinds of meditation. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Gratitude. What is the place of gratitude What's the place of gratitude in our lives? I try to be grateful every day. I tell myself just being alive. Just being alive is something to be grateful for. I mean, what's the alternative? Not being alive? Well, I mean, we don't really know what not being alive is about, do we? Some friends of mine believe that being alive and not being alive, life and death, so to speak, are all a continuum and they're all part of one whole way, one whole place, one whole being, if you will. Others don't feel that way. Others believe that this is life, what we are living every day, and go and death is like going to sleep at night and just not waking up in the morning and not having any dreams. In other words, it's all over. No one really knows, although some who believe in one of those or the other believe they know, but we can't really know what's next. We do know that when we take anesthesia and wake up, we very rarely have memory for what went on. It's like being away somewhere. So those people who hold that point of view can say, well, you know, it's like being in anesthesia for forever. But we don't know. But what I do know is that I'm here right now talking to you. And by the way, thanks for listening and, and, and being part of the program. Your listening makes this program possible. My gratitude was challenged about a month ago when in one day, both of my knees gave out, and I mean literally gave out, and at the same time, I got a severe rash all over my chest and my sides. I mean, I'm talking about a rash that was hot and prickly and itchy and energy draining. I mean, it's a beast. In fact, I still have it and it's a month later, but it's a little bit, I've learned, I don't know if I've learned or my system has learned how to accommodate to it. It's still there. My knees, on the other hand, are, my body is also accommodated to. And so I walk around. I don't walk the way I did before they both, quote, went out. I found out what went out means. What went out means in my case is little pieces became dislodged in my right knee. And there's little pieces in there. When I step down on one of those pieces, a lightning bolt goes through my body. And it's like, oh, that's the end of that walk. And in my left knee, something else happened. And um, 
But I accommodate. The system accommodates. So I still move around. And the system accommodates to the itch and the prickly and the heat and all the stuff that's going on in my chest. And I still manage to move around. And I think about those people who are dealing with much more serious issues, issues of foreclosure on their homes, issues of maybe will there be enough food on the table for their children, issues of what's going on with their kids in school, issues of whether they'll lose their jobs. And I wonder, can they find a place to be grateful? Is it enough, is it enough to be alive and be dealing with these things as part of life to enable gratitude, to say, I'm happy or I'm glad just to be here? What do you all think about this? I, I want to hear from you sometime in the future. Bec today's, today's program, by the way, is going to be connected to this issue because it's going to be about meditation. It's about a way of looking within. It's about a way of calming the mind. In route to gratitude, in route to being able to calm the mind, there are basics that we all must have and we all know that. Basics are water. We've got to have water to drink. We've got to have air. Do you, hundreds of millions, perhaps of billions of people on the planet right now still don't have water, fresh water to drink. But most of us here do. Those of you listening to this program most likely do have fresh water to drink. Do we, do we take it as a given? Just turn the tap and there's fresh water? We do, don't we? But it's not a given. It's something we've produced. We need water, we need air, we need food, and we need rest. We need rest. A, a, a short night's sleep can leave you groggy and unhappy, but a lifetime of short nights can have much graver consequences. We're living in a 24-7 society and sleep deprivation, I am told, is now an epidemic, especially for teens and people in the workforce. There is there is substantial evidence that sleep deprivation is associated with an increased risk for diabetes, for obesity, and other chronic illnesses. And, you know, and when you consider that chronic illnesses are the leading causes of death and disability in the United States, maybe we should stop treating sleep as some kind of a luxury or something that you've got to do and instead be looking at it as an essential part of a healthy lifestyle. Do you all think about your sleep? How many of us sit around and think and make sleep a topic of conversation? Do we get enough sleep? What does sleep mean? Do we enjoy our sleep? Is, do we, is it hard to sleep? How much sleep is enough? The National Center, uh, we have a National Sleep Foundation that recommends that adults get seven to nine hours of sleep each day. Children need even more. Yet, I'm also told that the average person is getting six hours of sleep. Not enough. One study showed that women who worked rotating night shifts for three to nine years, just three to nine years, had a 20% increased risk for diabetes. And other women had increases if they worked for 10 to 19 years in a, a, on one of these rotating shifts, their diabetes risk went up to 40%. Other researchers suggested that people who do shift work particularly those, tend to smoke more, eat unhealthy diets, exercise less. Well, look, I don't want to put you to sleep on this topic, but I do want 
get you thinking about it because isn't one of the missions of this program to stimulate your thought, increase your awareness. Talk about sleep with your friends. Let's get it going. And here's something else that's connected, which are sleeping pills. Do you take a sleeping pill to get a better night's rest? Well, the Scripps Clinic sleep researchers found that those who take even a few prescription sleeping pills during the year are nearly four times more likely to die prematurely than those who don't take them. You get, I mean, that, what, what do we do with a piece of information like that? You get it? Look it up on Google. Scripps Clinic Researchers. Four times more likely if you take a few sleeping pills. What are we talking about sleeping pills here? Zolpidem, that's Ambien. I have friends who take Ambien. Lunesta. How about Restoril? I can remember talking to friends, family members who used to take Restoril. Sonata. How about these names? Sonata, Ambien, Lunesta. We're living in 1984, aren't we? Let's try it again. Ambien, Lunesta, Restoril, Sonata. It sounds almost like a symphony, doesn't it? A symphony to put you to sleep. The researchers looked at nearly 11,000 people, average age 54, who were prescribing sleeping pills for an average of, or prescribed rather, sleeping pills for an average of two and a half years, and the group was compared to 24,000 other subjects of the same age who had not taken the pills. Over that period of time, 638 deaths occurred among the sleeping pill users. Look, I'm not going to put you to sleep anymore with this. What I am saying is, if you or your friends or your family members, someone you know, are taking Ambien, Lunestra, Sonata, or Restoril, or one of these sleeping medications, talk about it, folks. Make it a topic of conversation. Talk to your physician about it. You have a computer? Google these things. Learn about it, because these warnings are coming down the pike that just taking a few of them during the year are likely to cause you to have what is called premature death. That means, what does that mean, premature death? It means death before you're supposed to die, or death before how long you would live. That's it. It's death before how long you would live if you didn't take these wonderful sleeping pills. Okay, that's the end of news and notes. Let's go on to our interview with Dr. Patricia Monahan coming to us from Chicago. Dr. Monahan is one of the pioneers of the contemporary women's spirituality movement. You can Google her also or check her out on Wikipedia. She's the author of more than 15 books of poetry, nonfiction, including the two-volume Encyclopedia of Goddesses and Heroines. Hmm. She lives in Black Earth, Wisconsin. That's a nice, I like that name, Black Earth, Wisconsin. Well, she also, by the way, for those of you who are weenologists, she has a vineyard and a large organic garden. She's written a book, Wineries of Minnesota. Do you all know that there are wineries in Minnesota and Wisconsin? I would have thought it's too cold there. And uh, she's also a founder of and senior fellow at the Black Earth Society. That sounds like Black Earth, Wisconsin, doesn't it? Dr. Monahan holds BA and MA degrees in English, Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing. That's obviously stood her in good stead since she's now written 15 books. 
and a Ph.D. in literature. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Patricia. Thanks very much, and thanks for that inspiring and illuminating opening. You're welcome. Your book, Meditation, The Complete Guide, let's talk about it. To begin with, Patricia, what is meditation? Is it something you do in the, on a mountaintop in the Himalayas, uh, w- wearing a loincloth, as some people think? <laughs> you could. <laughs> or is it something you do in the privacy of your home? What is it when you're doing it? Let's start with that. What is meditation? Um, I'm going to make a segue from what you were just talking about. Um, and I am so enthralled with your whole approach um, and your whole theme. One of my central meditations is that I'm a Quaker, and many people do think of meditation as removing yourself from the world, Um, your image of the loincloth on the mountaintop, the the person in the loincloth on the mountaintop, let me put it that way. Um, That's very often people's image of meditation, that it's something that takes you away from um, the struggles of the world and into some distant, removed place. Um, as a Quaker, I can tell you that there are traditions that engage you. There's also engaged Buddhism as well. Um, engage you in thinking about how to make the world better and not just withdrawing. There are some kinds of meditation that are based in a withdrawal, but many um, are based in engagement. So that's one um, error, I think, that people have in thinking of meditation, that it's always a way of removing yourself, distancing yourself. And it's not. It can be a very um, important way to connect. Our approach, and I want to give lots of credit here to my co-author, Eleanor Durek, who goes by the name Terry. Um, She's a biochemist and a fabulous yoga teacher. Uh, She's in her 80s and looks in her 50s. Um, that's what many years of yoga can do for you. Why, why is looking younger such a great thing? Why do we always say that, Patricia? Good you know, point. Oh, there's Dr. Miller. He's 73 years old, but he only looks 58. <laughs> What's so good about looking 58 if you're 73? Why, I, I, that, that reminds me of Gloria Steinem's wonderful comment when she turned 60, and people said, you don't look 60. She says, this is what 60 looks like. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You, well, we, my, do, we do know what that's about, isn't it? It's a commentary yeah. that we don't venerate the old in our culture as they do in some cultures, such as China, right? We and, venerate, and, and we venerate, we venerate, and many others. We venerate youth so that if you are look younger than your age supposedly that means you're healthy and as of course the as the line of the song is youth is wasted on the young yeah but evidently terry is a healthy person who happens to be in her 80s let's put it that way she's uh she and i both practice multiple forms of meditation um we came about with the idea for this book um in the mid-90s um one of my friends asked me so what was the difference between doing the 15-year anniversary edition and doing the earlier one, and I said, Google. Um, It used to be very difficult to find information about various forms of meditation. Now it's all too easy, but you can find too much. So how do you sort through it? But we both were practitioners of a number of different kinds of meditation. And in the late 90s, the American Medical Association came out with a number of statements that Meditation was actually uh, an effective um, treatment for several um, uh, several different physical 
situations, uh, hypertension, chronic pain, and insomnia were, were the three. Yes. And Did at they that say, time, excuse me, let me interrupt. When yeah. they said that, and I recall them saying that, of course, the AMA, did they say what meditation was? What is this thing that they're no, saying is no. effective for, for, for hypertension? Precisely. They didn't, actually. They just, they said, just said this meditation. word, meditation. And uh-huh. because both of us are meditators in many traditions, um, we began dialoguing about the fact that people were then seeking out meditation um, because they had insomnia, for example, and tying in with your earlier discussion, instead of taking Lanesta, and they might go to a class um, presented in a way that this is the only kind of meditation. If you don't sit in this particular way and you don't, you know, adopt this particular worldview, then you're not meditating. And there were lots and lots of people who were trying it, they'd say, and dropping out. They, they'd say, ah, oh, trying, you know, try- trying what? Trying what? What they thought was meditation. In other words, they, they took one class, and it was a form of meditation that didn't work for them, and then they'd give up, and they'd say, well, I guess I'm on medication for the rest of my life because I can't meditate. You know, the I tried it, I can't meditate. It, they they, they can't do what it was that that particular class that's taught them, precisely. that that's what meditation is. Even though the AMA comes out and says meditation is effective for hypertension, possibly for sleep, and what was the third? Uh, there were three um, things that they came hypertension. out with. You know, hypertension. Hypertension, sleep, and, chronic pain. And, and chronic pain, thank chronic you. Chronic pain. Yeah, so here it is, you know, the, the most powerful org- medical organization in the world comes out and says, okay, this, uh, this, this technique is, is effective for these three conditions, but we don't know what the technique is. Now, it, is your book telling us? It is telling us what the it techniques is. It are. Is. And it's, I think, the only book that really looks at a whole variety of different forms of meditation Different people need different forms of meditation. The person who can um, engage in the stark and difficult practice of sitting zazen for a whole weekend, good on them, but there are some people... What does that mean, sitting zazen? What is that mean, that, that's, I think, what many people think of as the, the classic form of meditation. Yeah. Uh, to, to sit still, you know, possibly on a pillow, yeah. and to clear your mind and to uh, think no thoughts and become completely still. All right, let's hear that. Sitting zazen meditation means sitting still on a pillow, clear your mind, have no thoughts, and sit still. Yes. That sounds like it would take 10 or 20 years to figure out how to, I mean, how do you clear your mind and have no thoughts? And that's quite a thing in and of itself, isn't it? It is a discipline that I tremendously admire and I've actually sat Zazen for 25 years now, and I still think I'm a beginner. <laughs> but, okay. Now, be, be, but however, what's so good about having no thoughts and clearing the mind? Is it, what, what's the value of having no thoughts? Isn't that like being asleep? Actually, when you're asleep, at least when I'm asleep, actually, my mind we, is pretty that, darn busy. <laughs> I, I take that back. It's not like being asleep. It's like being a... But really, what is the value? Is, it, is the AMA saying that having no thoughts and clearing the mind is the, is the effective aspect on hypertension and, and pain and sleep disorder, that in and of itself not thinking is, is, what, is, is the trigger there? Not specifically, and I want to I get back to the larger question of okay. what is meditation in a minute, but Good. Uh, speaking as someone who has been a practitioner, um, the, the discipline of 
not believing that every thought that crosses your mind has to occupy the whole mind. So as you're sitting there, invariably thoughts will creep across the mind. And our tendency normally, uh, you know, we think, oh, God, I forgot to call Mimi. <gasps> you know, and then, and then we feel this urgency. Um, and we've got to either write it down or we've got to do it. You know, there's this uh, feeling of uh, need to act. Now, if that cro- thought crosses my mind in meditation, it's just a thought. I see it's just a thought. It's something I will try to remember afterwards, but I'm not going to invest in it. Some people like to talk about the train, you know, that comes after. The choo-choo is the, I should call Mimi, and then there's the, oh, shoot, I am so disorganized. And then after that is, you know, so there's a whole train of associations that goes on. And pretty soon, you're invested in this series of thoughts that they're just thoughts. They're not real. In What does that mean? What does that mean when you say they're thoughts, they're not real? I am not necessarily a better or worse person for having forgot to call Mimi. Oh, okay. It's those associations that go on that I am I am helpless almost to resist them. They just are going to come on like the train. In a sitting meditation, and there's several... Thoughts want to be the boss, don't they? Oh, they do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you distance yourself, you realize that you have choice. You can say, I don't have to let that caboose onto that train. I can, I can distance myself. So there is a calming... I don't have to have that thought if I don't want to. Right. It's, it's a thought. There's another thought behind it. There's another thought. There, there are thoughts. They're not, they're not reality unless I make them reality. But as we, Terry and I, began to talk about what meditation was, and, and many people really experience meditation through a sitting meditation class which is a very um, demanding form of meditation. It's, it really takes a lot to do it. To um, do what? To go to a class, sit there, close your eyes, and yeah, sit? Yeah, surprisingly sit? enough, that's one of the more demanding forms of meditation, to do nothing. <laughs> it's kind of paradoxical. One time, one time about 25 years ago or so, I went to a two-week silent meditation class out in the woods in the, in wow. the, in the Mendocino Forest. And what we were told to do is sit with our eyes closed and breathe and just watch what goes on. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was I asked the teachers before it was Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and Sharon. I can't remember. They started something called Vipassana. Or they, brought Vip- they didn't start it. They brought Vipassana meditation to this country. Right. And I said Stover, to them, yeah. yeah, and I said, you know, do you have to sit in a certain way or can you sit any way you want? They said, no, you can, in this one you can sit any way you want. So I brought a beach chair, and, uh, <laughs> and, and I sat in this beach chair, and I watched as the, as the days went on, people attempting to sit in all these different postures with their back straight and their legs folded, and they were in tremendous physical pain, which was distracting. I found that by sitting in a comfortable chair, it was much easier because my body didn't create pain, and therefore I could work on whatever was going on inside my mind. And I did have happen what you said, you know, the list, should I do this and do that? But after a couple of days, the list disappeared. They, you know, it was the same stuff mm-hmm. all over, over and mm-hmm. over again. You know, I could mm-hmm. say, oh, yeah, that's number 23, call Mike. Right. You know, and I almost, you know, and they were gone. And then afterwards, things did quiet down. And I came away from that experience feeling like it was the best vacation I'd ever had in my life. It was fascinating. Doing nothing and thinking nothing 
felt like the ultimate vacation from everything. But at the same time, I did feel as though I had withdrawn from life. So both went on at the same time. Maybe a, you know, a vacation in a way is a withdrawal from life, isn't it? And, you know, you mentioned about the idea of the retreat. Um, meditation retreats can be absolutely a great way to introduce you to a meditation. But as Terry and I talked about what is meditation, we really came to the realization that what it is is something you do. It is a practice. It's something that um, you engage in rather than something you believe, um, which is a very different approach from some teachers who, um, for example, will say, you know, this is, this is a form of meditation that comes out of a certain tradition and you really have to sign on to the tradition. Um, in the course of doing book research, one of the things that I do, and if you've got any potential writers out there, I want to recommend this. Um, I go to bookstores and I ask for the book that I plan to write. And then I see what they say to me. So what I found is in bookstore after bookstore, people would guide me to um, the section on Buddhism. Now, if you want some other form of meditation other than Buddhism, they don't know where to direct you. But the most striking example was I went to um, a bookstore in Wheaton, Illinois, which is the home of the Theosophical Society, but also of Wheaton College, one of the you know, conservative Christian colleges. And I went to the borders. Is that where I... Wheaton Terriers come from? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only, one of the three supposedly hypoallergenic dogs. Oh, really? Yeah, what are Wheaton, the others? Uh, poodles and uh, Portuguese water dogs. Useful fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those who are allergic, this is a health program. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I go to the to the borders in. Remember when there were borders? Went to borders in Wheaton, and I asked. I said, I, I, you know, I've been diagnosed with hypertension, and I want to learn to meditate. And the woman leaned across the counter and said, "You don't want to do that. That's the work of the devil." And I, I was quite surprised, since I was unaware that there were people that had that attitude. But I found that, in fact, some preachers will actually say that um, meditation will, you know, lead you to um, demonic practices. Just a couple months ago, the chief inquisitor, the chief exorcist for the Vatican said that Catholics shouldn't do yoga because it would lead them to worship Kali and Shiva. Well, there's lots of people I know who are Catholics who do yoga, and they do it for health and relaxation reasons, and they're not you know, consciously worshiping sheep. <laughs> no, they're stretching their catechism, though. Yes. <laughs> so there is that attitude um, that can stop people because of a religious belief that can stop them from engaging in meditation. So we said, okay, what if you say, what is meditation not from a doctrinaire point of view, it's doing a Buddhist thing or it is doing, but what is meditation? And what we came up with the definition as something that centers you entirely in the present. And in many of the great traditions of meditation, one of the major ways you do that is by attending to the breath. You know, each <laughs> I like to say you really can't breathe yesterday's air and you can't breathe tomorrow's air. It's, it's right now. You have to breathe the air that you're breathing right now. It really centers you in the present just to pay attention to the breath. But beyond that, there are some forms of um, meditation which are quite active. I do Qigong every day 
without fail. And it's a very active form. It, it descends from Taoism. It has a lot of connections to Chinese medicine. What do you mer- do? What do you do, Patricia? System. Tell us exactly. What do you mean when you say, I do Qigong? What do you Qig- literally do? Qigong is a moving meditation, and it involves uh, taking a series of postures and moving between them. It's like yoga, except you don't ever get on the floor, at least in the forms that I do. So if you can imagine, I'm standing there, and I'm um, first breathing and centering, and then I'm moving my hands in a little circle at my side, and then I'm moving them up, and I'm circling them with my arms out, and then I'm moving them above my head, and then I'm pulling down the chi, the energy, all through my body. So, so it sounds like a combination of Aikido and yoga, maybe, something like that, um, right? Moving and Yeah, it's... Um, Tai Chi is a form of Qigong. Uh, Qigong is the the overarching uh, term for Taoist-derived movement meditation. How do you spell Qigong for those listening, please? (laughs) It's spelled in a number of different ways. Um, Usually it is Q-I-G-O-N-G, but it is also sometimes spelled C-H-I, and that's the Qi, the energy of the world, Uh, K-U-N-G, Qigong, Mm -hmm. sometimes spelled that way. Uh, more often, Q-I-G-O-N-G. Um, many people have seen people doing Tai Chi, which is a more rolling motion. Uh, Qigong is a little more angular. Um, and as I say, it has a lot of connections with the healing meridian system that is used in acupuncture, for example. Uh, so it's very very much connected with the um, uh, Chinese uh, uh medicine and healing systems. That's one that I started doing about 20 years ago, and it was one that so connected with me. I really miss it if I miss my Qigong practice. It's something that really makes me feel very calm. I actually did an experiment um, a couple of weeks ago. I tested my blood pressure before and after doing my Qigong, and it was interesting because it depended on whether I had read my student email in the morning how high my blood pressure was. But there could be a difference of as many as 40 points after an hour of Qigong. I took note there that you said that your your blood pressure went up after reading certain emails. <laughs> I think that's important for our listeners to know because... Maybe there are certain times of day that we should or not should, but maybe there are certain times of day when it's more effective or healthier to be reading emails than others because I'm, I'm sure you're not the only person who reads emails and has a, a blood pressure rise. Right. I'm, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. But, you know, there's really definitely clearly a relaxing effect. Um, it's sort of like what I can call bad mail. There, I, you know, when you go to the mailbox <laughs> and you get a piece of bad mail, that's why I've trained myself never to go to the mailbox on Fridays. <laughs> Do you know about that? You don't go no. to the mail. Oh, you don't go to the mailbox on Fridays because if you get a piece of bad mail on Friday. And, and, and it's too late to do anything about it because so many things oh. close on the weekend. You've got to live the entire weekend within your consciousness that piece of Friday bad mail. Better to wait until Monday morning. Then you open the bad mail. You can do something about it. You can do it. something about it. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, the law profession is very well known for purposely sending people faxes that are bad faxes at 345 on a Friday afternoon because it's too late to do anything. And then they have this thing they call making the other part drip stomach acid all week long. 
<laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> well, you have now, and it's real. They're very, very cagey. Isn't that well, something? Yeah, you get a in, piece of bad facts at a quarter mm-hmm. to five on Friday afternoon and deal with it. And mm. talk about your blood pressure going up. No kidding. So with a lot of meditations, there is movement involved. Um, yoga, a lot of people practice yoga or certainly have seen it. Um, in talking about meditation, I think it's important to know that it's possible to make a lot of things meditation. As I said, I, I've been a student of Zen for a long time, and there's a whole philosophy of Zen, and, and Zen is the collision of Buddhism with the indigenous um, Japanese spirituality called Shinto, which is a, a nature-based religion. In Zen, there's this idea of um, being able to meditate at any time. It isn't just the sitting meditation, but being able to um you know, be meditating while you're uh, washing the dishes, uh, whatever you're doing, to be absolutely there doing that, not filling your head with something else, um, and and bring the meditation throughout your life. Um, now you're that, talking my language. That sounds like a meditation I can do. That is something that is, again, really very hard. It's amazing when you try to do active meditation of that sort I love the sound yes. of that, though, Patricia. It sounds true. That sounds to me like what I call dog yoga. <laughs> yes, I'm a, I'm a student of, of canines and, and uh, for decades, and um, what I've noticed is that dogs don't get together and say, let's go to yoga class at 11 o'clock this morning. What dogs do is they stretch in vivo. You've seen them. They're walking along, and all of a sudden, they just stop and stick out a leg, or all of a sudden, they stop and do the down dog. And it... it <laughs> And, and I've tried to copy that and just, you know, in, to integrate stretching into my daily life. It's very difficult to do because, for one thing, you look weird. You know, it's one thing for a dog to stop in motion and stick out a leg or stop and stretch or put his head down. You do that. A human being does that on the street. It looks sort of, you know, but odd. <laughs> but it's, you see the but similarity. It's very effective. Absolutely. It's very effective. If you can, I can do it around the house, of course. And, and I'm hearing what you're saying about meditation. It's almost meditation in vivo or meditation in action that you're talking mm-hmm, about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We have a chapter called Zen in Action. Um, the... The idea of being where you are, doing exactly what you're doing, is really primal to meditation. So imagine back to our person who takes the one meditation class and is told that they have to encounter the void and sit still, and they all they can think of is that the clock is ticking really loud, and they're forehead itches and they can't scratch it and it's a very uncomfortable sensation they may be someone for whom a movement meditation um, like qigong or yoga is excellent there also can be people who have a particular set of religious beliefs that they want enforced with their meditation there we did a whole section on christian forms of meditation a beautiful one is teze singing which comes from uh, post-war Europe, um, trying to bring together Catholics and Protestants in a um, in a meditative form, and it involves this hypnotic and repetitive singing. Repetition is often found in meditative forms, doing the same thing for a long time. If you are constantly inventing the song you're singing. And that's a different experience than going into a melody that goes over and over and on and on. So there are forms of Christian meditation. There are forms of um, 
Islamic meditation. There are forms of Jewish meditation. There are a number of different forms of meditation unique to specific religions. I always like to caution that people should be ethical about their approach to meditation because um, if you really don't trust Allah, doing Sufi breathing might not be honoring that tradition. Uh, Sufi breathing is a wonderful four-part breath that shows a enormous uh, physiological as well as spiritual knowledge in the different breaths that they that they use in the Sufi breathing. But if you are, you know, adamantly opposed to monotheism, um, that's probably not your best meditation. Um, I believe that one should be ethical in how one chooses. Um, it's not all spiritual delicate, delicatessen out there. Um, so, to go back to our original um, project, we said to ourselves, so if meditation is grounding yourself in the present, what does that? And what are the things that uh, we can uh, talk about? One thing that many people don't think of as meditation is drumming. And yet drum circles are a very powerful form of connecting, you know, very deeply in the present. You can't again be, you know, pounding tomorrow's rhythm. You have to be right here. And the physiological studies of drum circles are fascinating to me. There's something that occurs when people are drumming together called entrainment, which is where they start breathing and their hearts start beating at the same time. I find that just a fascinating tidbit. How We could not consciously make our hearts beat together. But when we're in a drum circle, that will that will happen automatically. But who would think that if women live together in a house, their menstrual cycles will right. coordinate, and yet they do? <laughs> right, indeed. We are we are deeply connected. We are um, deeply connected, aren't we, Patricia? We are deep. That's really what you're talking about. We're deeply connected as human beings, and the meditative techniques that you're talking about are ways of connecting, other than the, our usual ways. Yes, they need not be ways of pulling away. Uh, again, to go back to Quaker meeting, there's something in in Quaker tradition. It, Quaquerism is a tradition rather rather than a dogma. It's a practice um, called the gathered meeting. In this, people come together. They sit in silence. I have been at gathered meetings where nobody spoke at all for an hour, so completely silent. And yet at the end, everybody knew there'd been a spiritual change. How can that happen without people, quote, communicating? I've also sat through silent meetings where at the end of it, everybody got up and said, oh, that's over. (laughs) So it's not that the silence itself will always create that sense of gathered, uh, gatheredness. Sometimes it can be at a meeting where people stand up and speak, um, and the messages somehow flow together. There's lots of lovely stories about, um, uh, you know, like the, the the first time we're at Quaker meeting, who's kind of sitting there squirming and thinking an important thought, and this elderly Quaker next to him sighs and gets up and says exactly what he was thinking. And after meeting the elderly Quaker, turns to the newcomer and says, "Next time, speak for yourself." <laughs> next time, quake for yourself. <laughs> Did, was there some connection between George Fox, the founder of, of, of Quakerism, 
And quaking, I mean, did Quakers actually quake at some point? Did they, that you, I mean, you mentioned this person squirming in the seat. Is, is there an aspect? There, there is actually a, a sense of a spiritual um, shaking or quaking or change, urgency is another way to put it. Um, if you have reached a point where there is a... Um, a, a spoken message that should come out. There's a whole way in which Quakers have very, in, a, in a very sophisticated way understood the difference between a thought and a message um, or vocal ministry. Um, not, not every book report should be given in Quaker meeting, but when you have a message that just really needs to come out, there's this kind of sense of, you might not be physically shaking, but as a, a sense of real urgency, this has to come out. This is so. Yeah, the the the, the quaking is a, I would say, a spiritual rather than a physical experience. I see. It's not a real tremor, as some of my friends call it, a bodily tremor. Sometimes it can be. It but can it does be. Not have, have to be. I don't know. From a PR and branding point of view, I think this is the friends is a is a is a word that works <laughs> than, than, than Quaker. <laughs> I, 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 I agree with you there. <laughs> we've got somebody who'd like to uh, uh, make a comment or ask a question, so I'm going to take a short break here. Uh, stay with me, Patricia. Sure. Okay, Michael. Hi, uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, thank you. This is a friend from the Mendocino Friends meeting, and I wanted to comment about George Fox and quaking, what Patricia was just talking about. Thank you. He was a, in, um, George Fox was in front of a magistrate, which is like a lawyer or a judge yes. in England, and didn't take his hat off, and <clears throat> they got thrown in jail lots of times. And um, the judge, um, George, the judge said, you're not taking your hat off or something like that. And the judge, I see if I can get this right, I'm starting to lose my train of thoughts. Just a second. Um, the person, Fox said, even you, sir, will quake in front of the Lord. And so the magistrate said to Fox, are you a Quaker? And that kind of, that, that, they were this religious society. Good story, that, good that, story. Even you will quake in front of the courtroom, and so yeah, are no, you. You, and you, will, you will quake you in will front quake. of the Lord. Yeah, in front of the Lord, Even I you, see. Max, yes. We're all equal, so that's kind of where that also, that, and that's... I, stuck, I, I had never heard that. Oh, that's, that's a great, great little story. Thank you so hey, much. Keep Patricia? Yes. Yeah, good. That's a good story, isn't it? Um... I, I love Quaker stories. They're, they're sort of parables that help you understand things. Um, not My, to focus too much on, on that particular yes, form of, of meditation. There are so many others. One area that well, we Before we go on, yeah, I do want to say there is, there is one Quaker saying that I'd like to just say out loud because it's been something that's been important in my own life, and that is speak truth to power. Yes. I think yes. that is a, a wonderful slogan, to speak yes. truth to power. And maybe that's what George Fox was doing before that magistrate when he didn't quake properly, but it's, Absolutely. it's an interesting slogan. Let me uh, please go on now. I, I thank you for that. In in uh, beyond the denominational types of uh, meditation, and I include in that the Hindu-based meditations like yoga, the Buddhist-based meditations, um, there are lots of meditations that are what we called creative meditations. In in creativity, there is uh, a kind of centering in the present. And let me let me take an example: the haiku. Now, the haiku actually has a great heritage uh, within the Zen tradition. Um, you are not just writing a poem, and I think 
many school children in America have been warped forever by bad teaching about haikus being forced to write little weird poems. But the idea is actually to capture a moment of elimination in a particular form. Many creative um, activities have um, the basis of meditation within them. Now, I do believe it is possible to take absolutely any form of meditation and make it into work. You can take yoga and spend all your time trying to get a perfect yoga butt, and that, you know, you can be driven, you can be completely unrelaxed. It is really possible to make it work. Um, and that's absolutely against the whole idea of meditation, which is to remove yourself from drivenness. In other words, you, be- can, you can make relaxing attention-driven, yes. <laughs> dis- very difficult, uh, anxiety-producing relaxation. <laughs> absolutely. Am I relaxing better than that next guy in, in class? Um, Who's the best relaxer in this class? <laughs> okay. But similarly, there are things that you do that could be meditations. Uh, I started talking about like Zen in action, you know, washing the dishes in a meditative way. Um, a few forms of meditation that I have found remarkably healing. Um, one is very simple, which is drawing in nature. Now, you can. This is one that you could definitely turn into a competitive thing. I don't think I like my drawing. Um, the idea is not to be invested in the outcome, but to be in the process. So, for example, bring a pine cone indoors, put it on your desk, and draw the pine cone. You will be amazed at how expansive the world becomes when you stare at a pine cone and draw it. Um, you may get a bad drawing, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to be in the present. And somehow looking at a pine cone will often not have quite the same um, depth of connection as trying to, you know, make each line that, you know, captures that little edge there. And you, you, you wind up seeing the uniqueness of a single aspect of nature, a leaf, something as simple as that. Sketching in nature is a really marvelous um, form of meditation. Another one is craft work. Um, this is definitely one that can be turned into work. I got to get that uh, scarf done for Susie's birthday. You know, I I, I got to stay up late knitting. Um, but many people have found that the the rhythmic quality of craft work can be very soothing and meditating. But it's called work. It has the word work. You don't work baseball. You play baseball, but you do, cr- <laughs> but you do craft work. You play basketball, right? But you know, we, have we, these, can... we have these words that go with work. That's, you know, that kind of work. This is kind of play. And, maybe and, we should uh, change it to craft play. I think so. I think so. <laughs> I, I, you know, definitely. You know, like, in, in my profession, you know, we have these, these words about work and and seminars and you know who who, who wants to go to a seminar i mean it sounds like work it sounds you know like oh do we i mean is that if you have a week off from quote your job and you want to go somewhere for education do you want to go to something that sounds like another job a a workshop a workshop that was the one i was looking for a workshop you know it sounds like a shop where you go to work and you're going to be in there grinding your head all day but you're talking about sure i used to talk about play shops play shop i used to call them play shops i think he took that from me but (laughs) but in your book you talk about 
drumming as meditation. You talk about dancing as meditation. You talk about taking psychedelic medicines. Mind-altering substances can be meditation. You talk about literature. You talk about many, many things can all be meditation. I, I, don't, that, rem- I don't remember the mind-altering substances chapter. Uh, page 21, uh, the use of psychotropic or mind-altering substances, and I quote, <laughs> right under various techniques. Um, but I, I think that your theme, if I get it correctly, is that anything, whether it's this, this, this piece from a tree or my friend who looks at waves and looks at, mm-hmm. at, at and looks at, at grass moving with the wind, anything that we focus on that reminds us that we can't breathe yesterday's or tomorrow's air that keeps us in the now is a meditative meditative technique. Is that right? Absolutely. It can be. It, it can does, be. It doesn't it does have to mean, be, but it yeah. can be. Let me it's take a, this call here, Patricia. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yeah, uh, Bill Churchill, Ukiah. Hi, Bill. Um, nice to hear you. God, what a great program. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks the, for uh, listening. Yeah. You know, Regarding we, we, haiku, I, I'm part of the haiku festival. I've been for a few years. There's um, the prize winner two years ago, a young man. He's a bilingual haiku. What happened to Bill? Hello, Bill. I- I'm I'm breathless waiting for the bilingual haiku. I know. I, I lost him. Okay, we're going to just hang up on Michael, and let's hope that Bill calls back. And Patricia, oh, take that sound off. That was something. Okay, we're talking about almost anything that we do can be, but isn't necessarily meditation. Did I get Precisely. that? Precisely, yes. If you can center in the present... Um, let go of concern for did you do it right in the past or are you going to do it right in the future, and whether or not you do it as a practice. You, sh- you know, you have to do it. Doing it once, you might have an interesting experience, but meditation is a commitment to doing it again and again and finding the deeper richness each time you do. Um, Finding the deeper riches. I'm going to put you on the spot right now. I hope not inordinately so, Patricia. I'm going to ask you to give us right now for those listening, but not those of you in automobiles moving, just those of you who are in a a safe place. Can you give us a meditative technique that we can all do together right now? Actually, honor to Allah, I would offer some instruction in Sufi breathing because I can walk you through it, talk you through it, and you can do the different breaths. Um, there are four breaths, and of course the Sufi tradition um, is one of the great traditions of Islam. Um, if you think of your breathing apparatus, you can breathe through the nose and you can breathe through the mouth. You can also breathe out through the nose and you can breathe out through the mouth. So of the four breaths, they and they are each connected with... Um, a color, a sense of purifying, and so forth. Um, each of them is a different sequence. So the first one, the earth breath, is in through the nose and out through the nose. The second one is the water breath, in through the nose, out through the mouth. third one is the uh, fire breath, in through the mouth, out through the nose. And the last one is the air breath, in through the mouth and out through the mouth. So... Each one of them you do five times, so there's four breaths, um, 
and each of them done five times, so a course of 20 breaths. So if you are not driving, and do not close your eyes if you are driving. You can actually do this while driving. You can if you don't close your eyes. But don't close your eyes. Please don't close your eyes, folks. (laughs) So I'll guide you through the five breaths. You don't have to count. I'll be counting for you. Uh, Or the four breaths. uh, Okay, everybody ready? Although everybody's ready. We're all ready. Okay. Starting with the earth breath in through the nose and out through the nose. In through the nose. Out through the nose. Imagine yourself grounding yourself in the earth. In through the nose. And again, out through the nose. In through the nose. Out through the nose. And last grounding breath in through the nose. Out through the nose. Now you move on to water. In through the nose and then blow out through the mouth. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. Imagine water flowing over you. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. Four. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. And our last one. In through the nose. And out through the mouth. And now we move on to fire. In through the mouth. Breathe out through the nose. Imagine red going through you. In through the mouth. Out through the nose. In through the mouth. Out through the nose. You're purifying yourself with fire. In through the mouth. Out through the nose. In through the mouth. And out through the nose. And our last one, air. In through the mouth. And out through the mouth. In through the mouth. Out through the mouth. Connect with the stars as you do this. In through the mouth. Out through the mouth. In through the mouth. Out through the mouth. And your final breath. In through the mouth. And out through the mouth. And you would end by saying, Praise Allah. There's a short prayer that is said at the end of it. Now here's something you don't know that was particularly wonderful for me. While I'm doing this program, I have a tendency to put the microphone in the wrong place. The wrong, pla- <laughs> the wrong place means that while I'm talking to you, Patricia, you can hear my breath like that. Nobody in radio wants anybody who's doing a program to have their breath come over the air. Wants to be, we want them to have a nice, quiet sound. So I adjust the microphone so you can't hear me breathing. This time, I had the opportunity to put the microphone in the wrong place and do a lot of breathing. And that's, <laughs> I could hear it. I, I know. Well, I was purposely doing that so the listeners could hear the breathing, and it was the first time I was able to legitimately breathe on air. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so that's a simple technique, right? And many, and many, um, many forms of meditation have some breath work involved, and the paying attention to the breath is... Uh, you know, a very common form. Again, repetition is another common uh, trait with meditations. Um, and sometimes a connection with a uh, religious or spiritual tradition. Not always, but sometimes. So those are some of the things that uh, we find consistent in meditative traditions. So if we just did that breathing, in through the nose, out through the nose, in through the nose, out through the mouth, in through the mouth, out through the nose, in through the mouth, out through the mouth, just doing that repetitiously over and over again is a powerful meditative technique. It is. And each one of those actually has different physiological impact. Um, A nurse friend of mine (laughs) said to me, do you know that water breath is what we teach in Lamaze? Ah, yes. So that's one of the more relaxing breaths. Um, It's also similar to the huff-puff breath used in Qigong. 
which is in through the mouth and then <laughs> blow it out through the okay. Through the, uh, uh, into the nose, out through the mouth. People are listening. They're saying to themselves, okay, I'd like to try that. That was an interesting thing that Patricia Monahan just led us through on this program. How many minutes a day should I do that just to begin with, and how often should I do it? Oh, that is, <laughs> that's a big one. How about five minutes a day to begin with twice a day, if, with just to get one, going? If one did it five minutes a day, twice a day, that would be great. That um, would be great. Too often people imagine that they have to start with an hour a day and it's so hard to find an hour a day we can all find 10 minutes that's so, right an hour know, a day is too much to start out patricia i just got small. a signal i'm sorry to interrupt i just got a signal we've got about one minute left for you to pass on any any little things or big things that you want to pass on to our listener we got to wrap it up faster than that i'm getting a signal we got 30 seconds patricia i'm sorry okay <laughs> i guess don't just do something but sit there that's a good good line to end with don't just do something, sit but there. sit there. Patricia Monahan, Dr. Monahan, thank you so much for being with us today. Her book, Meditation, The Complete Guide, Techniques from East and West to Calm the Mind, Heal the Body, and Enrich the Spirit. You're going to want to get it. It's New World Library. You can get it online. Google it. Patricia Monahan, Mon Meditation, The Complete Guide. Thanks for being with us today. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our staff at KZYX and our in-studio engineer, 